Good afternoon, and welcome to this afternoon's lunch hour lecture. We're very pleased to have you all with us today. Uh, the title of today's lecture is Looking for the Invisible Enemy, the Threat of Biological Warfare, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mark Kuldkep. Uh, my name is Brian Kloss. I'm an associate professor in global politics at UCL, and I'm going to be moderating and chairing the lecture today. Um, Mark Kuldkep is a world-leading expert on Scandinavian history and politics, and he is a, an associate professor in those subjects at UCL's Department of Scandinavian Studies. He completed his PhD on Estonia's Nordic identity in World War I at the University of Tartu in 2014, and he's been at UCL since 2015. His primary field of research is Baltic, Nordic, and European political history in the first decades of the 20th century, but he has published on Swedish attitudes towards the idea of Baltic independence, plans for Scandinavian involvement in the First World War, and many other topics. And he is currently working on a book about the subject of today's lecture, which is Biological Warfare and the 1918-19 influenza pandemic. Before I turn things over to Mart, just a few housekeeping things to, to go over. One is that we'll be taking questions via the platform Slido, sli.do. So if you'd like to uh, join, you just go to sli.do, sli.do, and you enter the code LHL Autumn. So again, LHL Autumn. And once you've done that, you can answer or ask a question rather. And once the lecture is concluded, I will field questions and ask them on your behalf for Mart. So with that being said, I will turn things over to Dr. Mart Kuldkep, who will tell us all about the invisible enemy, the threat of biological warfare. Thank you for tuning into this lunch hour lecture. And thank you, Brian, for this very kind introduction. As, as Brian mentioned, the topic of my talk today is also the preliminary title of a book project that I'm currently working on. At present, it's still in uh, very early stages, but uh, assuming that everything goes according to the plan, it's going to be a kind of work of political and social history that we'll be focusing on two uh, different but interrelated topics. So firstly, the history of biological warfare in the First World War and the 1918-19 influenza pandemic or the so-called uh, Spanish uh, flu. And more particularly, it will be a story about the very widespread suspicions uh, that existed at the time uh, in the allied countries, particularly in the USA, that the germ that had caused the Spanish flu uh, was in fact some form of a German bioweapon, uh, possibly launched in a desperate attempt to gain strategic advantage as Germany was uh, sliding towards its uh, eventual defeat in the war in the second half of 1918. And in my talk today, I would like to go over some of what I'm going to write about in the book, including a few of the so-called threat images and conspiracy theories, uh, which these uh, suspicions gave birth to. Uh, often these conspiracy theories originated with uh, members of the public you know, who were trying to better understand the pandemic and to protect themselves, their families against it. Uh, but sometimes they were also thought plausible enough by uh, civil and military authorities uh, to be investigated uh, as a result. Uh, suspected threats that came to the attention of these uh, authorities uh, uh, ranged from uh, imaginary enemy submarines to aspirin tablets to bars of soap uh, to suspicious squirrels, a miniature toy cat, uh, just a few of the uh, things that people uh, thought were uh, suspicious and uh, spreading the uh, germs. Now, before saying anything else about uh, uh, what happened uh, in the First World War and during the Spanish flu pandemic, 
uh, we should probably ask the question, so what? Uh, so why, why should we care about uh, any of this? Uh, and, and, but for me, of course, uh, for one, I think it's a fascinating story. And uh, that in itself uh, is, is almost good enough. Uh, but also, I would say that these conspiracy theories from more than 100 years ago can provide an interesting parallel uh, to some things that are going on today. Uh, you might have come across some of the current conspiracy theories, uh, which have been aired amongst others in the highest circles uh, of the Trump administration, that COVID-19, uh, too, was originally some sort of a bioweapon uh, that was deployed uh, intentionally or maybe escaped uh, from a, a Chinese uh, lab. Uh, one celebrated uh, example uh, of that uh, comes from the uh, recent Borat movie, uh, from the famous scene involving Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. And before he gets busy tucking in his shirt, uh, Giuliani uh, states to the fake journalist in the film, uh, quite matter-of-factly, uh, that, uh, I quote, China manufactured the virus, and I also quote, deliberately spread it uh, around uh, the world. Uh, but uh, distrust is uh, not just confined to uh, people uh, like Giuliani. According to uh, my friend Brian, who's tuned into the public opinion in the US, perhaps 80% of the people uh, over there today would agree with the statement that there is uh, a reason to doubt China's official story about the or origins of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, so even today, uh, similar uh, theories uh, are quite uh, widespread. And uh, in my opinion, the anti-German hysteria and the germ scares, which exploded in 1918 during the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, can be usefully compared to these similar phenomena uh, today, including the so-called corona racism against Asian-looking people, or fears of objects such as uh, 5G cell towers that are allegedly, allegedly spreading the virus. And now, uh, as uh, vaccines against COVID-19 are becoming available, we are already seeing various conspiracy theories related to that, which uh, range from fears of vaccine side effects to the idea that vaccines are used by Bill Gates to inject tiny microchips into people's uh, bloodstream. The First World War uh, was in many ways a completely unprecedented conflict, uh, both in its scale uh, as the first truly global war and also in the way that it was uh, fought uh, as the first, first large-scale war, making use of modern tactics, modern weaponry. And these modern weapons and capabilities included, for example, trenches, uh, barbed wire and the machine gun that were used uh, with a devastating effect right from the outset of the uh, conflict. But they also included aerial reconnaissance, field camouflage, tanks and other innovations that were uh, first deployed during the war itself. And gas weapons, uh, of course, is a particularly notorious example of innovative weaponry taken into uh, use during the First World War. But another new uh, arrival uh, on the scene was biological warfare, uh, which is defined in one handbook of the subject uh, on the subject as the use of biological toxins or infectious agents, such as bacteria, viruses, insects, and fungi, with the intent to kill or incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of uh, war. Um, now, as a historian, I, I should say that the, the history of biological warfare is a subject that's fairly difficult to study uh, because there are not many sources about it. Uh, biological warfare programs, uh, when they have existed in the past, they have generally been top secret and there were often attempts to destroy records uh, afterwards. And this is also what happened after the First World War. Uh, 
why is that? So one reason why it's uh, it's so secret and uh, and the uh, people deploying it are almost ashamed of it is because biological warfare is generally thought to be uh, against international uh, law. And eventually bioweapons were banned, even though it happened uh, after the uh, First World War. But on an even more basic level, I think it's because more than conventional warfare, and even more so than chemical warfare, biological warfare is something that captures the imagination uh, of the public. Most people feel that there is something deeply disturbing uh, about uh, biological warfare and how it's deployed. It's usually done secretly for fear of reprisals or at least uh, moral condemnation. And it's also deployed imprecisely, uh, meaning that it targets not only combatants in the conflict, but usually uh, also the civilian population uh, and the, the civilian population then irrespective of gender or age uh, or anything. And because biological warfare is so secret and so imprecise, it's also very dangerous. You don't necessarily even know that you're being attacked. It could be that the symptoms that you're experiencing are due to some kind of uh, illness uh, instead. Or maybe you don't even notice uh, any symptoms uh, before uh, you're already dead. Uh, but even if you do think you're being attacked, you don't always know where the enemy is hiding. So maybe the enemy has disguised themselves. Maybe they operate through secret agents. And finally, you don't necessarily know how to defend yourself. What is the exact nature of the substance that is being weaponized against you? What does it do? Uh, what if you can't see the weapon or sense the weapon at all, at least uh, not without some kind of precise scientific instruments? So in, in short, how do you deal with a weapon that's used silently, secretly, is hard to detect, and the effect of which on you is unknown, right? The flip side of this is uh, that uh, if you do suspect that biological warfare is being deployed against you, it's also very easy to misinterpret something as a possible case of biological attack. So there is a Russian proverb that goes, fear has big eyes, meaning that if you're already scared of something, your mind will make it even bigger and scarier. Uh, so if you have a reason to uh, believe there are monsters, uh, you might start believing that there is one under your uh, bed uh, as well, right? So in short, uh, Biowarfare is something that catches people's uh, imagination. And this has probably been the case since the ancient times. We do know some instances of uh, uh, pre-modern uh, deployment of uh, biowarfare. So we have stories about corpses of plague victims being catapulted into besieged towns or the blood of leprosy patients uh, used to poison arrows, uh, stories like that. And some of them probably have some truth to them, uh, such as uh, stories uh, of um, smallpox infested blankets being uh, used in deliberate attempts uh, to infect and to eradicate American Indian tribes. But at the same time, uh, what we also know, uh, or at least what we suspect uh, with a good reason, is that the history of biowarfare is so rife with rumors and tall tales that it's often very difficult to uh, separate fact from fiction. And even if we assume that some instances of pre-modern deployment of biowarfare are genuine, it's almost impossible to say whether they were effective. Uh, so people might have wanted to uh, cause some damage by using bioweapons, but whether they ever succeeded, we don't uh, quite know. And it's probably fair to say that modern uh, biowarfare first became possible after the development of modern understanding of uh, diseases, uh, which emerged out of the beginnings of microbiology in the 1860s. 
Uh, before that, the understanding uh, of the nature of bioweapons was probably too uh, underdeveloped, too in insufficient to make their effective deployment uh, very uh, likely. But even uh, during the First World War, uh, when decades had already passed since the, uh, the first beginnings of microbiology, uh, biowarfare was still uh, very much in its uh, infancy. Uh, having said that, uh, it is indeed the case that the First World War is the first military conflict uh, from which we have uh, undisputed uh, documentary evidence of uh, biowarfare uh, being deployed. Uh, the pioneers in this field uh, were a small department of German military intelligence, the so-called materials directorate of the political section of the German general staff. And from 1915 uh, onwards, uh, they used anthrax and glanders cultures in a limited number of covert operations against horses and cattle primarily, as well as fungi against wheat to sabotage uh, allied logistics and uh, food supply. On a few occasions, uh, these uh, preparations for uh, sabotage actions were also discovered uh, and used uh, by uh, allied propaganda uh, to a great effect. In particular, there were uh, two widely publicized cases in the first half uh, of 1917. Uh, one was in northern Norway, uh, where German agents uh, headed by one Baron Otto Karl von Rosen were apprehended uh, by Norwegian police uh, carrying various sabotage materials, uh, which included uh, files of anthrax cultures that were hidden in sugar cubes, uh, which they, uh, they said planned to feed to uh, reindeer uh, up in northern Norway to disrupt allied logistics between uh, Norway and uh, Russia. And some of these sugar cubes survive to this day in the uh, Norwegian police museum. Uh, the second case uh, was in Romania, where test tubes, again uh, containing anthrax, uh, were found hidden in the garden of, uh, of the former German legation. And uh, there they had been left behind by German diplomats who had had to evacuate in a hurry when Romania entered the war on the side of the Allies in August uh, 1916. And stories about uh, these discoveries uh, played their part in uh, fortifying Allied resolve against Germany. Uh, but as we now know, thanks to research carried out in the 1990s and after, the German biowarfare program uh, was likely very small scale and probably not very uh, effective. We also know that biowarfare against humans was explicitly forbidden uh, by German military leadership and uh, the various imaginative plans that were floated, such as the 1916 idea uh, by a German military uh, uh, officer uh, to uh, medical officer, sorry, to drop hundreds of liters of uh, plague uh, germs into British ports to infect the, rat, infect the rats and cause a plague epidemic were turned down in horror. And the Kaiser himself explicitly uh, forbade using zeppelins to uh, drop germs uh, on the enemy. Uh, in fact, it's possible that uh, this proposal, even if it wasn't an outright provocation, uh, was to some extent influenced by Allied propaganda with its uh, tendency uh, to uh, make outrageous claims about uh, what Germany was uh, capable of. Also more broadly, uh, recent research on the effects of biowarfare uh, tends to cast doubt uh, on its purely military effectiveness suggesting that while it does have a military use, uh, the effects of biowarfare are mainly long-term rather than immediate, and they are mainly social and psychological uh, rather than simply kinetic. In other words, bioweapons work best as weapons of terror, in inducing fear, confusion, uncertainty, 
and effective defense against bio-warfare <clears throat> should therefore include measures to suppress sensationalism in news reporting and the promotion of realistic uh, threat appreciation in order to avoid inappropriate fears, uh, medical mismanagement, disproportionate response, uh, and so on. Now, during the First World War, the uh, information environment uh, was, of course, uh, anything but anti-sensationalist. Uh, on the contrary, uh, Allied propaganda, which was fueled in equal measure by patriotic fervor to mobilize the home front, and by a genuine, if uh, often unfounded, belief in German barbarism, uh, habitually and publicly incriminated uh, Germany various acts of inhuman warfare, uh, and uh, biowarfare was uh, one of them. So while, for example, the British authorities occasionally cautioned the press to restraint, the general climate was uh, highly con uh, conducive of completely unrealistic appreciations of the threat that was posed by uh, German biowarfare. An important reason, in my opinion, why uh, biowarfare-related propaganda was deployed against Germany already early in the war was not because there was yet any actual evidence of German bioweapons in use, but simply because Germany was an easy target for uh, allegations of this sort. Germany had the most developed uh, biochemical industry of all the belligerents in the First World War, and German scientists were highly regarded around the world. And this, then this was combined with the widespread idea that the German society was highly organized, fervently patriotic, and the reputation of German science made it easy to uh, conjure up images of a whole uh, army of scientists in the service uh, of the Kaiser. I will just bring one example. Uh, the very widely circulating British Sunday magazine, John Bull, uh, printed on the 23rd of September 1916, a story uh, by the Australian war correspondent and traveller, A.G. Hales, where Hales attributed to the German emperor uh, the words, I quote, our scientists, like our soldiers, are organised, uh, which uh, Hales thought was evidence that, I quote again, the Germans will be inhuman enough to resort to the foulest means if they were uh, in a desperate uh, state. So he conjectured that it's an easy matter for all bacteriologists, for any bacteriologist to insert the microbes of terrible maladies amidst the contents of tinned foods, uh, which would by ordinary trade and commerce uh, be scattered all over uh, Great Britain and cause outbreaks of uh, contagious uh, diseases. There was absolutely no evidence of Germans uh, contaminating uh, tinned food, uh, but this is a suspicion that uh, crops up uh, again uh, and again. And furthermore, even outside of Germany, according to Hales, in fact, in all countries, he says, there were apparently, I quote, swarms of scientific Germans who could and would, if they received orders, insert the bacilli of, every, of nearly every conceivable kind of contagious diseases into such goods. So it was therefore crucial to take immediate steps to minimize uh, this uh, danger. Um, early on, uh, such lurid stories of uh, German scientists mixing poisons and cultivating infectious bacteria um, naturally meant that actual mysterious outbreaks of uh, certain diseases came to be suspected uh, to be the work of German uh, agents. Uh, for example, this was the case with a series of anthrax infections among British front troops, which were eventually uh, then traced back to cheap uh, shaving brushes made from the hairs of anthrax-infected horses, so they had nothing to do. Uh, with uh, Germany. Um, in uh, 1917, uh, the uh, germ scare seems to have, have, have intensified, uh, particularly in the United States, 
And in fact, most of my archival sources that I'm uh, using for this uh, book project uh, are uh, American and stem from the period following the American entry into the war in April 1917. The decision uh, to finally take this step was aided by scandalous revelations, not just about the so-called Zimmermann uh, telegram, but also about the existence of an extensive German sabotage program in the USA during its period of neutrality. The most famous uh, example of which were the so-called Black Tom Island explosions in New York in July 1916, uh, organized by German agents to destroy US-made munitions that were to be supplied to the Allies. These explosions were uh, massive and, uh, amongst other things, uh, uh, damaged the Statue uh, of Liberty. Uh, and it did not require much of a stretch of imagination to assume that German sabotage materials that were smuggled into the United States might also have included dangerous bacteria of the same kind uh, as those that were being seized from German agents in Norway or found buried in the garden of the German legation in Romania. It also seems that the American press was more sensationalistic and uh, war uh, censorship uh, less effective, allowing unsubstantiated rumors to be published and circulated more easily uh, than in Europe. And this is evidenced by the files of the Bureau of in in Investigation. This is the precursor of the FBI, uh, which was the organization that was uh, trying to check the veracity uh, of these uh, various uh, rumors. After the revelations about German sabotage materials uh, in Norway and Romania, uh, many unexpected cases of anthrax that cropped up all over the US and sometimes also in Europe were now ascribed to supposed German agents and some German farmhands. Uh, there was uh, one that's mentioned uh, in the slide uh, you're looking at, uh, were arrested uh, under the uh, suspicion of planting germs. Increasingly, uh, for the public, the existence of German sabotage germs was no longer in doubt. The task was merely to find out uh, their concrete sources and their concrete uh, transmitters. Uh, and looking for suspicious uh, items uh, spreading the germs, uh, members of the public tended to be fixated on articles of personal hygiene, particularly court plaster, uh, soap and bandages. So in, in short, things that came into close contact with the body. And uh, furthermore, things like that at the time were often sold by itinerant peddlers who were strangers to the communities that they passed through uh, and could therefore easily be seen as uh, potential uh, German uh, agents. Uh, they were not just uh, limited to anthrax. Uh, Germans were thought uh, by the people uh, to uh, have uh, weaponized a variety of diseases. Uh, there was one part of soap, for example, that was suspected of having been impregnated with uh, typhus, tetanus, and other germs. So the German agents were supposedly able to, uh, uh, to mix these uh, germ cocktails. It also seems that around the same time, some rumors must have filtered through about the rejected, rejected German plans uh, to drop plague in British ports. Uh, by spring 1918, American embassies in Europe were reporting that the uh, enemy uh, had uh, dropped uh, uh, poisoned candies and cotton soaked with diseased microbes over some towns in Italy, or that germ-laden balloons were being floated uh, across the line from the German front uh, to spread disease amongst American soldiers. Such possible uh, threats against American expeditionary forces uh, made the American authorities, I think, both civil and military, uh, to take the germ rumors much more seriously uh, than before, since they were now directly uh, 
well, uh, targeting uh, the war effort. Now on to the Spanish flu. Um, the 1918-19 influenza pandemic uh, was, as we now know, one of the deadliest recorded events in human history. It killed somewhere between 20 and 100 million people worldwide, with one recent estimate uh, suggesting something in the order of 50 million, which is more than the total casualties of the First World War thought to stand at about 40 million. The first well-documented outbreaks of the pandemic in 1916 and 17 occurred in two big military camps in northwestern France and southeastern England, but, but initially it did not spread outside of these two camps, it probably went through another mutation amongst the American troops that had started arriving in Europe after April 1917. And in March 1918, the virus reappeared in rural Kansas in the US uh, and then uh, spread quickly uh, over North America and then across the Atlantic uh, back to uh, Europe, uh, carried by uh, the traffic, uh, the military traffic uh, primarily uh, going on at the time. Uh, wartime conditions probably played an important role in how fast the virus spread. Uh, the crowded conditions in troop barracks, in trenches, uh, prisoner of war camps, factories, and so on. And this was also a period of political unrest uh, following the Russian October Revolution. There were plenty of mass meetings, processions, and other similar events going on. And of course, malnutrition and exhaustion from work must have also contributed uh, to the weakening of people's immune systems, as well as the general stress of uh, war and uncertain future. During the pandemic, uh, two global trends uh, could be noted everywhere. Uh, firstly, high fatality rates, and secondly, the fact that the virus tended to primarily affect young and healthy people who had been considered to be a low-risk uh, group in all known pandemics up to that time. And while the high fatality rates are not surprising, the reasons behind the extraordinary mortality in persons 20 to 40 years of age are still something of a mystery today. There is one influential theory uh, which says that uh, this was due to the so-called uh, cytokine storm, which is a kind of uh, severe immune reaction to the virus that ends up being more harmful to the body than the virus itself. And because uh, you know, people uh, in, in these ages have, have uh, a stronger immune system, they were then more exposed this uh, cytokine storm. But of course, there was no such understanding in 1918. And um, instead, people would uh, turn to uh, other theories. Um, the first suggestions that the new epidemic uh, might have been intentionally launched uh, by uh, uh, Germany stem already from June 1918, uh, just as uh, the flu uh, first uh, started uh, spreading. And the rapidity of the deaths and the fact that the flu disproportionately affected young people, uh, many of whom were conscripted or working for the war industry, uh, seemed to add up to a picture that kind of makes sense, uh, because, especially because of the uh, earlier impact of the uh, Allied propaganda and the recent actual revelations about uh, German biowarfare uh, activities. Now, I should also say that this attribution to Germany was, of course, complete nonsense. Um, Germany did have some capability to de develop bacteriological weapons, uh, but at the same time, they were far from being able to weaponize viruses. Uh, also, if anything, Germany was more affected by the pandemic than the Allies, because Germany had planned to undertake a series of major offensives on the Western Front between March and July 1918, but now its soldiers were struck uh, down by flu at crucial points, adding to the national advantage that was enjoyed uh, by the defenders anyway. At the same time, though, 
the flu did work as a kind of a weapon, uh, I would say, a psychological weapon, uh, by further consolidating Allied resolve against what one Italian newspaper in October 1918 uh, dubbed, I quote, a Turco-Germanic bacterial criminal enterprise. It wasn't bacterial, it wasn't Turco-Germanic, whether it was criminal or not, probably not, uh, but people certainly uh, believed it could be. So when the second wave uh, of the flu outbreak hit most of the USA in autumn 1918, suspicions of, of, of enemy action uh, came to be very widely circulated. Uh, one, if, one influential figure in this respect was one Lieutenant Colonel uh, Philip Duane, uh, who was uh, head of the health and sanitation section of the Emergency Fleet Corporation in Boston. And he publicly declared his opinion that the epidemic had been started by German agents uh, sneaking ashore uh, from submarines, uh, a statement that was likely inspired by the scandalous visit of the German submarine Deutschland uh, in the USA in spring 1917, as well as the fact that the British military intelligence had in February 1918 infiltrated a German sabotage operation against Argentina by means of anthrax cultures that were supposed to be carried over the Atlantic on a submarine. But his statement uh, was uh, printed in many newspapers and then generated a web of secondary rumors about possible landing areas of German submarines and whether these could then be correlated to particularly uh, bad outbreaks uh, of the Spanish flu. And it also initiate, initiated an attempt on part of the Bureau of Investigation to check the feasibility uh, of uh, germs spreading from submarines, which it eventually uh, found to be uh, very uh, unlikely. Um, as the pandemic uh, swept across the US, uh, suspicions of intentional germ spreading uh, cropped up in many different places. And in their letters to the authorities, members of the public uh, directed attention again to a variety of individuals uh, thought to be intentionally uh, spreading the flu. Again, these were often people moving between the communities, uh, such as peddlers, traveling salesmen, itinerant preachers, uh, but they also included pickpockets, uh, circus artists, uh, and, and also workers involved in the production and packaging of food uh, who were uh, thought to be uh, able to infect uh, tin food or something like that. Often these people were characterized as German, uh, and there were indeed uh, many people of German heritage, of course, uh, living in the US, or at least argued to be sympathizers uh, of uh, Germany. And a, a variety of items that were produced, sold, or left behind uh, by these people were considered to be suspicious as well, uh, ranging against, again from uh, soap and such things to squirrels. Uh, there, was, there was a squirrel farm uh, in the upstate New York uh, run by a slightly eccentric couple that were you know, all about breeding squirrels. And uh, some farmhands that they were employing uh, turned them into FBI or the precursor of FBI because they thought that the uh, squirrels were being bred with the intention of releasing them in New York City and making everybody infected uh, with the flu. Uh, and, and there was also a type of uh, toy cat, which I found particularly endearing. Um, there was an itinerant salesman who was selling toy cats, and uh, two men thought this was suspicious uh, because the cats supposedly had, I quote, a hole in them, which, uh, which was uh, not necessary. And then these men thought that the hole must have been stuffed full of influenza germs. Um, Arguably, uh, such denunciations reflected the beginnings of an understanding of how the disease was actually spreading, that is, through contacts between the communities, uh, even if it was highly improbable that anyone was spreading it intentionally. Uh, there were also reverse uh, or inverse rumors uh, that some German communities were suspiciously being spared by the flu, uh, which is uh, perhaps a bit uh, more uh, difficult to believe. 
But all in all, such examples of citizen activism uh, or vigilantism amounts to an attempt uh, by the people to, to basically understand the situation uh, that they were in. They were endangered by a threat they did not uh, fully uh, understand, so they tried to make sense of it. A particularly nefarious group of conspiracy theorists uh, targeted nurses and doctors who were suspected of spreading the flu uh, through the medicines they were administering to the soldiers and the civilians, uh, often supposedly under the guise of attempting to cure the flu or to relieve its symptoms. And one very persistent rumor that was uh, thoroughly investigated by the Bureau of Investigation uh, claimed that the group of doctors and or nurses on German pay had been shot in one of the US military encampments for intentionally uh, infecting the soldiers uh, with uh, flu. Uh, you can see some, some documents uh, relating uh, to uh, these investigations. Um, but many actual doctors as well, uh, often uh, with a German background, uh, came under suspicion and were reported to the authorities, sometimes also by other doctors, their own colleagues. And the medicines that they had given to the, their patients were sent in to be analyzed to determine uh, whether they had been intentionally uh, contaminated. Uh, suspicions were also targeted uh, against firms and individuals that were peddling so-called miracle cures uh, of the flu. Uh, I mean, uh, any time there is, there is a pandemic, there are also going to be quacks who, uh, who promise easy cures. And uh, now some of these people were thought to be uh, uh, possible vehicles for actually spreading the flu uh, rather than uh, curing it. Another uh, particularly widespread rumor uh, involving medicines uh, focused on the Bayer uh, brand of uh, aspirin. Uh, this was uh, originally German produced and recognized as one of the flags flagship German products in the US uh, during the uh, First World War. Uh, it had come under uh, rather bizarre suspicions before, uh, with one patriot having been convinced that uh, the newspaper uh, ads uh, for the aspirin were used to send secret messages to German spies and uh, asked uh, this matter to be investigated. Uh, but now uh, many people started thinking that these uh, German uh, aspirin tablets were being used to spread influenza germs, uh, not least because they were cheaper than other brands in the market and they were widely uh, used. And many requests were submitted to the authorities suggesting that uh, they test the aspirin tablets for possible uh, germs. Uh, several anal analyses of this kind were indeed carried out and of course the aspirin was never found to contain any germs uh, of any known kind. But like everything, uh, the uh, germ scares uh, uh, during the First World War also had a lighter side. Uh, there were all kinds of patriotic puns that abounded with an aura-based popular song, the man who put the germ in Germany uh, in, in, in charge in uh, December 1917, and Harold Lloyd's short comedy, Kicking the Germ Out of Germany, uh, coming along in 1918, and another 1918 comedy short, the Geezer of Berlin, which was a parody uh, of a full-length propaganda feature uh, called The Kaiser, the Beast of Berlin, uh, focused on the Kaiser's attempt to infest the bakery in, in, uh, in France with a German germ, and, and then, uh, in fact, the Allied uh, armies. Um, so much for the general public. Uh, what about the people who should have known better, the medical specialists? In fact, they were actually consulted uh, as the authorities tried to uh, find out uh, whether there was uh, any substance uh, to the various complaints and rumors uh, that were being made to them. 
But doctors too uh, became, in a way, a factor in, uh, in spreading uh, conspiracy theories uh, further. While some of them that were consulted by, consulted by the authorities uh, did think that such theories were completely ridiculous, uh, not least because Germans themselves were also being infected. Uh, others, were, others were somewhat more suspicious and took the 1917 revelations about the uh, German use of bioweapons to mean that there might actually be some truth uh, to the rumors and that the infection of the German armies had perhaps been uh, accidental. Um, these contemporary attempts to understand the pandemic uh, were uh, in fact seriously hampered by lacking medical knowledge about the cause uh, of the Spanish flu, which was generally, at least in the beginning, uh, assumed to be some kind of a microorganism. Uh, so virology was still in its infancy, and it was precisely in these years, in 1918 to 1920, and largely thanks to the experience of the flu pandemic, that it eventually made some important progress. But initially, uh, doctors were unable to provide conclusive answers about the nature and the origin of the flu and more crucially rule out any human uh, involvement in its uh, creation uh, or uh, spreading. And this split in medical opinion about possible German agency uh, behind the Spanish flu uh, came to align with fault lines in a purely uh, medical uh, controversy about the nature uh, of the influenza germ. Uh, so already by 1919, an understanding had developed in a part of the medical community that the influenza was not caused by bacteria, as had been assumed since the uh, early 19, uh, sorry, 1890s, but rather by a kind of microbe that couldn't be uh, cultured. In other words, a virus. And in the light of this new discovery, the conspiracy theories about German uh, involvement uh, behind uh, the Spanish influenza appeared to be less credible. Uh, however, there were other doctors who, for various reasons, refused uh, to accept this uh, viral explanation of influenza. And uh, they would then now uh, cling on to not only the bacteriological explanation, but also to the conspiracy theories about uh, German responsibility uh, behind uh, the flu. Uh, in 1919, uh, one Leonard Keen Hirschberg, uh, MD, uh, argued in a widely circulated American magazine that the disease had been caused by a novel microbe uh, related to uh, the bubonic plague uh, and that the theory of German involvement should not be dismissed uh, out of hand. Uh, and, and his uh, claims were then repeated uh, in uh, other newspapers and elsewhere uh, as uh, well as far afield as in Australia. Uh, what you can see in the slides uh, are unpublished notes uh, for, an, uh, for a biography uh, of Hirschberg, uh, which are currently on sale, I discovered, on an online auction site for $800. And you can see uh, the uh, unpublished biography was titled Anatomy of a Quack. Uh, so uh, I think the uh, current uh, opinion uh, on uh, Leonard Keen Hirschberg's medical competence is not particularly high. But as late as 1921, uh, 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 an Italian doctor uh, published a pamphlet with the title in, it in, in Italian, Are the Latest Serious Epidemics of Criminal Origin, Reflections and Considerations, expressing his opinion that it had been highly suspicious that the epidemic uh, broke out in late summer 1918, a generally unlikely time for a flu epidemic to begin, but exactly the time when Germany had started to slide uh, towards its initial, towards its eventual uh, defeat uh, in the war. It was only after the bacterial theory of influenza had been completely discredited, at least by at, le at least for most people, uh, that the uh, rumors about it having uh, caused, uh, uh, having been caused by German bio warfare, eventually uh, faded into obscurity. 
But the memory of the wartime germ scares did have some afterlife. Uh, the best known example is perhaps uh, Catherine Ann Porter's uh, short novel, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, uh, from 1939, which is very much about the uh, 1918 influenza pandemic and the suffering it caused. And it includes a vivid scene uh, set in the editorial offices of an American newspaper uh, focused on two colleagues making fun of the then current rumors, which apparently included ideas such as, I quote, it is rarely caused by germs brought by a German ship to Boston, a, a camouflaged uh, ship naturally, and uh, maybe it was a submarine sneaking in from the bottom of the sea in the dead of the night. And even the suggestion that the germs had been sprayed all over the city of Boston, since uh, I quote somebody reported seeing a strange, thick, greasy looking cloud float up out of the Boston Harbor and spread slowly all over that end of the town. Um, another example uh, comes from 1931, and it's uh, from a book by uh, Herbert Yardley, a former American cryptographer, uh, who uh, published uh, uh, in 1931 a highly revelatory book about his uh, years in the American Secret Service. And in this book, there is a story about his stay at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, where he supposedly deciphered a telegram reporting on an Entente plot, interestingly, to assassinate President Woodrow Wilson by means of either slow po uh, poison, or I quote, by giving him the influenza in ice, in some kind of ice cubes, which perhaps reflects uh, some memory of the sugar cubes uh, that uh, were seized in northern Norway in 1917. And Yardley notes that although we don't know whether the plot really existed and whatever came of it, Wilson did indeed catch the uh, Spanish flu at the uh, Paris Peace Conference and soon also uh, died uh, because of it. Uh, finally, uh, old allegations about German bio-warfare ended up influencing the preparations for the Second World War. Uh, so in the 1930s, amidst general fears and concerns over German rearmament, a journalist called Henry Wickham Steed uh, published in an article where he alleged that active German research on biological warfare was still taking place. And these revelations, again repeated uh, in, in many other publications, uh, caused an international sensation and caused the ramping up of bio-warfare programs in France, the Soviet Union, the UK and the US, uh, again, uh, sort of contributing uh, not just to bio-defense, uh, but to uh, offensive, uh, development offensive capabilities. Now to conclude, um, when a team of US Armed Forces scientists synthesized in 2005 a new influenza strain based on the gene segments of the 1918 flu pandemic virus, it was described uh, in the journal Nature uh, as, uh, I quote, perhaps the most effective bioweapons agents uh, now known. Uh, but I think there are reasons to say that it was not entirely new. In a way, as we have seen, the Spanish flu already did function as a kind of bioweapon uh, back in 1918. And in line with what modern biodefense spe specialists would say, its effect was primarily psychological uh, in nature. And this raises interesting questions, in my opinion, about how something can become a weapon uh, solely through attribution without even being intentionally deployed and then backfire on its supposed developer, such a, just as the Spanish flu. Backfired on Germany, even though it wasn't even a German creation. 
Uh, there was no evidence back then, and there still isn't any today, of German bioweapons uh, having been used against humans. But fears of such use were inflated through propaganda, through rumor and hearsay, which all probably did play their part in strengthening popular resolve against uh, Germany. And the existence, as I said, of an actual uh, German biowarfare program didn't help uh, either. Like the famous 1915 gas attack during the Battle of Luz, the German bioweapons ended up turning uh, against uh, their own. As we now know in hindsight, the overblown Allied propaganda efforts during the war, uh, uh, soon exposed to have been largely baseless, contributed to the cultivation of a victim mentality in Germany, and therefore paved the way for the Second uh, World War. Uh, but the Allied countries themselves did not emerge unscathed either by essentially falling prey to their own anti-German propaganda. They put a lot of efforts into so-called hunting the Hun, uh, rather than trying to take actual uh, measures uh, to contain uh, the pandemic. The lessons for today in terms of combating the recent coronavirus disinformation and conspiracy theories would, I think, include the suggestion to avoid demonization of the supposed enemy and the suggestion to promote a realistic and informed understanding of the threat as far as it's uh, possible. I also think it's a good idea to try to be aware of the past uh, panics and germ scares. The torching of F uh, 5G towers might seem like a bizarre way uh, to deal with a major public health uh, challenge, but it's not without the historical parallel. And I think the better we understand the social psychological responses to major threats, uh, the more resilient uh, to them our societies uh, can become. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Mart. That was uh, an excellent uh, presentation. Very interesting to see all the different examples from toy cats to squirrels uh, and everything in between. I'm gonna start with a question. I just wanna remind the audience that if you have a question for um, Dr. Kuldkep, please go to sli.do, slido, and the code you type in is LHL Autumn, all one word, and then just type your question and I will convey it to, to Mart. Um, the first question I'm gonna ask is about conspiracy theories and how they spread. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about is there is a real vector for conspiracy theories online today, and we see that with COVID. It seems to me from your talk that the vectors of conspiracy theories spread was in mainstream newspapers. Is that accurate? Was How, how did they actually spread and how widespread were they at the time? Uh, yeah, so uh, I think newspapers did play a major role. And uh, I think this is the reason why they were so common in the US and perhaps less common uh, in Europe because the war censorship in the US was less effective and there were just uh, more newspapers. Uh, and uh, they uh, often reprinted uh, scandalous stories that uh, they found in print themselves. Uh, and uh, there was, you know, fairly, there wasn't a lot of facts uh, checking, uh, checking going on. Um, another medium uh, was uh, private letters. Uh, so uh, the First World War is also the time when uh, when the, there is a ma major boom in, in letter writing. Uh, so pr previous to that, uh, many people, even, even if they were literate, they didn't have a particular reason to write uh, letters to their uh, family members or, or acquaintances. Uh, but soldiers that, who were sent to the front or who were just confined to these military encampments, they started writing letters. And uh, anybody who has been in military service uh, knows that uh, you know, rumors uh, start circulating uh, in the army uh, very quickly because there is this is a total deficit of information. So you, you start uh, filling the vacuum with disinformation. And these uh, rumors were then uh, 
uh, you know, about balloons being floated uh, across the front lines or, or uh, German origin uh, nurses and doctors injecting influenza germs into soldiers' bloodstreams. They would then communi communicate it back home uh, through these uh, letters. And sometimes the letters made their way to the newspapers and they were printed because the newspapers at the time, they were quite keen to print letters from soldiers. So I think that's how it uh, worked. But of course, uh, the spread was nothing like uh, today uh, with uh, social media. Could I also ask, I'm going to encourage people to go on to Slido where uh, bring in your questions as much as you can. I just want to ask one more follow-up question, which is whether you saw in your archival research um, any evidence of sort of echoes of the debates of today about things like lockdowns and masks. And, uh, you know, given that there was this sort of demonization of Germany, whether that affected the discourse around the actual response to the virus the same way that some political circles today are blaming China and uh, trying to have that be part of their political response to the virus? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I've been mainly looking at uh, the Bureau of Investigation materials, and uh, they generally didn't engage with the pandemic at all. It wasn't uh, considered a national security uh, issue uh, like it would be today, I, I suppose. Uh, if it wasn't something orchestrated by the enemy. Uh, so uh, they did engage uh, with the pandemic only uh, through the suspicions and rumors and uh, you know, letters that uh, made their way uh, to them. Um, you, you sometimes uh, sense uh, that you know the service uh, members themselves they were they were suffering. Uh, so several investigations that I've been looking at uh, they were broken off at some point because uh, the agents that were conducting conducting them just uh, couldn't continue since they had fallen ill uh, with influenza uh, themselves. Uh, but I think there was something in the. Uh, in the spirit of the times that uh, made it uh, that also made it difficult to talk about the uh, about the pandemic sort of ideas about masculinity for example it was uh, uh, not really considered to be proper if you were a young uh, active uh, male uh, to stay at home and and you know be in bed and, and, and sick you were expected to continue working being in service uh, still uh, even if you were suffering from some kind of an ailment uh, an, an ailment uh, so I think this contributed to the spread uh, as uh, well. Uh, the debates that must have existed over the use of uh, masks and so on, we do know that they did exist. And there was also an uh, anti-mask uh, movement uh, at the time. Uh, they, they were somehow separate uh, from uh, what I've been talking about. So I haven't come across uh, a lot of that. Great. There's a question online about the role of the war in the spread. So to what extent did generals share some of the blame in the sense of uh, allowing troop movements and uh, seeding infections through the war? Oh yeah, they shared a lot of the blame, uh, particularly because they re refused to introduce lockdowns in the military encampments where the uh, where the uh, flu uh, first started emerging. Uh, so that, there is there is a well documented case. Uh, I, I mentioned this military encampment in rural Kansas, and the head of it uh, just refused to uh, institute the lockdown, uh, and uh, this is how it got out uh, in in the first place. And there was. You know, partially an insufficient understanding uh, of uh, you know how the flu was spreading and what was uh, causing it and how dangerous it was, but I think there was also the uh, problem of. Um, uh, sort of uh, the military command line, uh, not willing to listen to suggestions by any military, uh, sorry, any civilian uh, authorities. So they wouldn't take very kindly to uh, to uh, the efforts of uh, like 
civilian uh, agencies. Uh, so yes, uh, a major reason. And also the way that the troop transports uh, to uh, Europe were organized. So uh, the soldiers weren't guaranteed uh, beforehand to discover whether any of them uh, were infected. So many people actually uh, fell ill uh, on the way uh, from US uh, to uh, Europe. So they had started their journey uh, seemingly all healthy when they arrived, uh, you know, whole uh, shipfuls of uh, soldiers uh, were suffering. Great. I'm still waiting for some questions to come in from the audience, so I will use the chair's privilege and ask another one. Um, I'm curious about the sort of moral discourse around uh, bacteriological or biological warfare back in World War I. There was obviously um, an acceptance or some form of acceptance of chemical weapons. Was the view of biological weapons on par with chemical weapons? In other words, that sort of it's okay because in a war, uh, you kill through whatever means possible, or was the discourse around them slightly different? Um, I would say that the discourse changed over the course of the war, uh, and, and also regarding uh, chemical weapons. Uh, so it, it wasn't like uh, they immediately uh, started uh, using uh, you know, any, any of these innovative uh, capabilities right from the outset. This is something that developed over time. And uh, we definitely see a kind of... Uh, uh, change from a more moralistic discourse uh, about uh, you know rights and duties and honorable behavior uh, in in war towards a, a much more sort of power political emphasis on the necessity of the war, and particularly in Germany uh, as it uh, experiences uh, its first setbacks already in 1914, it uh, sort of realizes that it's only uh, only uh, possibility of uh, of achieving victory on two fronts, fighting on two fronts at the same time, would be to go all in. Uh, in some kind of a total war. And uh, the um, development of these new weapons uh, is, is a part of that. And uh, the Allies then uh, take some of them into uh, use as a response uh, to German uh, deployment uh, of the uh, same uh, weapons. But there are still some red lines, uh, I would say. And uh, one example of that is the German ban uh, on using uh, bioweapons against people. Uh, so this is something that's uh, floated, something that's uh, asked about, something that's considered. We know that because there are archival sources from Germany surviving. Uh, uh, at least giving some kind of uh, insight into these discussions. And uh, they just said no, uh, they, they just wouldn't do it. Uh, which, uh, you know, arguably didn't really help them any because the Allies believed this was happening anyway. Uh, so whether Germany had actually banned it or not uh, made very little difference. The other consideration is whether they would have been able uh, to uh, use bioweapons against people. And the, uh, uh, you know, the li likelihood is that probably not, no. Uh, even their attempts to, uh, in fact, uh, you know, wheat crops and in fact, uh, horses and reindeer, uh, we have very little information whether they were ever uh, effective. Uh, and anthrax uh, is, is, is a disease that's uh, not uh, carried from uh, one, uh, uh, one host to the other. Uh, so you have to keep on infecting the horses, they won't infect each other. And uh, so there was also the problem of whether they possessed suitable agents uh, for uh, that kind of uh, biowarfare uh, effort. Uh, as, uh, as we know from the experience of uh, bioweaponers uh, from the Second World War, and that during the Cold War, uh, you know, keeping these cultures alive is incredibly difficult, and the manufacturing them is uh, incredibly difficult. Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to 
uh, to uh, actually put the like fanciful ideas you know, that you, know, you might have in, into practice. And uh, by now, most experts, uh, as I said, uh, have, have said that actually the kinetic importance of uh, biowarfare is, is uh, probably fairly low uh, compared to the uh, psychological uh, importance, so to say. Great, we've got time for one or two more questions. So um, one I wanted to ask was the issue of labeling the flu. Um, obviously it's called the Spanish flu, which I know there's historical reasons why that's potentially a misnomer, but were there efforts to rebrand it as German flu the same way that sort of Trump is trying to call COVID China flu or the Wuhan flu? Is that, is that something that's being, that was politicized at the time uh, of attempted rebranding for political reasons? Uh, yeah, so there were proposals uh, that it should be called German flu instead. Um, there was one newspaper article I think I had in the slides uh, of uh, you know some patriot who had sent a letter to a newspaper saying we need to rebrand it because uh, and and I think in in his. Um, in his opinion, it wasn't even that important whether it was caused by Germany or not. He just thought that there's something as vicious as the Spanish flu, it should be called German flu uh, because it's just as bad as Germany. Uh, so uh, efforts uh, were definitely, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, efforts of that sort were definitely going on. Um, at the same time, of course, um, in, in Europe, what we see is uh, the flu being attributed to some other country. Uh, so people in Spain obviously don't call it the Spanish flu. If I remember correctly, they called it the French flu. Um, people in Poland uh, in uh, 1918, at least in some cases, referred to it as the, the Bolshevik flu. Uh, it didn't actually come from the East, but uh, it was like Bolshevism, which was often also you know, characterized as a kind of germ infecting people. Uh, you know, today we might, might say it's a meme, uh, right? a, a kind of idea you know, that uh, infects people you know, the same way as, as, a, as a germ would. So yes, there was uh, politicization of that, uh, but I have actually seen very little use uh, of uh, uh, the term German flu or the German plague or anything like that. It does you know, come about sometimes, but mainly in the context of somebody saying that's what it should be called. Uh, but whether people actually called it, I'm a bit uh, doubtful, yeah. Great, we've got time for one more question. This one's from the online uh, platform. So Gia asks, do you think the threat of biological warfare has increased? And if so, how has it increased? Um, I think it has increased uh, because, uh, you know, today, we have a much better understanding uh, of uh, what biological warfare is, how to best deploy it. Um, there is a lot of expertise in, uh, in uh, manufacturing the germs, keeping them alive. Uh, there is also the threat of um, sort of proliferation and, and going rogue. Uh, biological weapons uh, in some parts of the world, at least, uh, somehow ending up in the hands of bioterrorists. Uh, so there has been a lot of anxiety uh, over that. And uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that the threat, if anything, it has increased. Uh, now, how severe the threat actually is, is, is a bit difficult to say, because again, uh, during the Cold War and afterwards, there are just some isolated case, cases of, um, of bioweapons being uh, actually deployed and actually being successful. And even in these cases, the casualties have been small. So uh, again, the main effect has been uh, psychological. And uh, so you could say that there is a kind of uh, psychological proliferation uh, of the bio threat and uh, this is definitely going on and the ongoing pandemic uh, is uh, you know adding fuel to the fire uh, in the sense that some people as we said in the beginning nowadays believe that this uh, ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic is also some kind of a uh, bioweapon whether it's intentionally being deployed whether it somehow got out of hand and escaped uh, so uh, 
and, and th then we run into the risk of disproportionate response, uh, right? Uh, like it happened with uh, weapons of mass destruction in the beginning of the Iraq war. A similar scenario could, uh, could uh, happen again. Let's say China is suspected of having bioweapon capabilities. What's the international co community going to do about that? Uh, so all these effects, I think, are actually more dangerous uh, than the sort of kinetic impact uh, of uh, bioweapons in terms of the making people ill and, uh, and uh, causing casualties. Wonderful. Well, that was uh, an excellent example of using history to better understand our present moment. And I'd like to, uh, on behalf of the audience and on UCL, thank Dr. Mark Kuldkep for an illuminating lecture. Um, look out for his book, which will eventually be tentatively titled Looking for the Invisible Enemy, the Threat of Biological Warfare, coming at some point in the future when, um, when, it, when it's released. And we will, of course, um, Keep an eye on all of these topics going forward as they have lots to do with what, uh, what we're dealing with in the current moment. You can see upcoming lectures by visiting the UCL Minds webpage. Thank you very much for joining and stay safe and stay well. Thank you.